Welcome, everybody, to episode 171 of the Metabilis 2 podcast. My name is Ben. And I am David. And I'm Stephen. Hey, <laughs> Hello. Stephen of the New to Who podcast. Welcome to the Metabilis 2 podcast. Ooh, we don't often have a guest, and now we have a guest. <laughs> Thank you, David and Ben. It's uh, amazing to be on. Uh, good to be chatting with you again after what seems an eternity ago, Gallifrey 2019. Jeez. Gosh, it, yes. could be a, it could be decades ago, Over couldn't it? Over two and a half years ago, I believe. Yeah, yeah. it feels like 20, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't gone over the cancelling of next year's Gallifrey, mm. which has torpedoed my February of next year. Mm-hmm. It is a shame. Have you been back to Gallifrey since your first one? No, that was my one and only so far. I, I do hope to be back. And obviously, it's not going to be as, as uh, Ben says next year. But hopefully in the future, it'd be good to see you chaps again mm-hmm. and everyone else. Yeah. You'll have just have to arrange a meeting in the Houston area again and <laughs> get, get going that way. <laughs> yeah, that might be the deal. Yeah. So we've invited you on, Stephen, tonight to talk about the one and only Tom Baker. We've been spending the summer kind of doing an overview and retrospective of mm. the Tom Baker era on Who and just Tom Baker himself and what he brought to the role and his impact on on the program. So we're going to throw it wide open since uh, we've been talking about it. We've gone up through season 17 right now, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to start bringing in additional voices to see what Tom means Ooh. to them. And uh, when when did you start watching Tom, or wh- how did you start watching Tom? Was he your first doctor? or? Do you know what, David? He he was, but in a way that I didn't realize it. So I, I became a Doctor Who fan after I started watching Doctor Who by a matter of years, I think. He was always on uh, our Australian Broadcasting Corporation at around about 5.30 in the afternoon. So you know, once you're back home from school playing with your mates and there'd, there'd be you know Tom Baker and usually Liz Sladen as well. And there'd just be this sort of almost interminable <laughs> series of, of, uh, of green monsters and alien spaceships. And it, it didn't strike me at first in the sense that I wasn't an immediate fan, but it was always part of that sort of cultural landscape of, you know, it was on at 5.30 on the ABC and mm-hmm. uh, almost mm-hmm. through osmosis, I sort of slowly became uh, obsessed with the the program. Um, so I think Tom Baker was my first doctor in terms of exposure, but I would say actually that it wasn't until probably the 90s and when Peter Davison was actually on the ABC um, they were repeating him at 4.30 in the morning that he became my doctor um, at that point in time but when I think about um, you know who, who my doctor is I guess I would have to say that Tom Baker was my first doctor and in, in many regards he ha- has left an impression like there's still a comfort in going back to series 13 and 14 in particular for me. I love series, uh, season 18. I think it's it's incredible. It'd be interesting to see what you chaps think of that. Mm-hmm. Um, even the silliness of 17 as well. So, I mean, it's it's such a long run. It's an iconic performance. Um, and he was always there, as I say, just in that sort of cultural osmosis sort of thing uh, for us growing mm-hmm. up that um, in many ways, Tom Baker was my doctor, yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm generally obsessed, not obsessed, I'm interested in... The difference in the kind of psychic landscape of watching Doctor Who between sure. kind of the various kind of who who watching countries. Mm. That's the thing. Yep. So in Australia, was Doctor Who on every every night, or was it was it like it was? So I remember David's um, saying much the same, where Tom Baker would be stripped five days a, a week, and it would right. be the same for us right. as well. Um, so right. yeah, in in that regard, it sort of pop up for maybe. Uh, half of the year and then disappear for half the year. Then you'd get him back the next year for six months and it'd be five days a week. It was uh, very much, uh, you know, 
present in the in that sort of ABC um, televisual so, landscape. So they they they'd run like all of Tom Baker, and then it would stop, and then they'd start again, kind of thing. It, how it how did all- it work? It was almost at random, seemingly, and you know I can't really recall exactly which stories they ran to um, back then. But right. um, you know there would be I I, I remember uh, you know snatches of, of of robot, but I'd also remember the you know the stones of blood, and sometimes there'd be Legopolis yeah. on them. You just sort of think, okay, m- they must have gone at some point from you know first to first to last with Tom. Right, right. But yeah, that was that that was the Doctor. He was the only Doctor that I saw. Uh, as I say, until the 90s, and even then it was 4.30 in the morning, I'd already become a hardcore fan, so I was either getting up or recording those those Davison stories. Oh, hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was a kind of like a loop mm. of, of Baker, Bakerness. Wow. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think the ABC and the BBC would have come to some sort of, you know, deal where they gave him a bit of a discount or whatever, because it was just always on, I'm sure <laughs> of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's cheaper by the dozen. Perpetual Baker. I think that's why with Tom Baker in the States, who's always on during mm-hmm. the 1980s, it really imprinted on my peer group or my age group of uh, fans watching Doctor Who that the mm. whole Tom Baker era just became associated with Doctor Who. There wasn't even, even though they, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, where they would play Pertwee, Troughton, mm-hmm. all the other doctors eventually, it was pretty much still for that set of Americans, it was focused in on Tom Baker and Tom Baker was Doctor Who. So he's really left an imprint on American fandom of people in their 40s and 50s. Yeah. I think that's true. That that sort of outsized presence of Baker is the Doctor you know, to the point where he pops up in The Simpsons as the definitive incarnation yeah. is, you know, outside, <laughs> outside of Britain, he did remain up, I would say, up until, you know, the the reboot and, and, and Eccleston sort of casting as the Doctor is, and certainly Tennant sort of like uh, a rise to preeminence as, as the, the modern Doctor since. Um, he was the Doctor for many, many people, certainly outside of Britain. It didn't matter which age you were or when you were watching it, he was, he was the Doctor. Hmm. Do you think his shadow or his imprint still impacts the show and the direction that they can what they can do or what stories they can tell does he still have that overbearing nature both in and off the program it's possible i don't know if it's tom or it could be a combination of the production um or or whatever the case is but i think certainly from pertwee onwards and definitely um you know hinchcliffe and holmes there's a conception of doctor who that maybe becomes um it doesn't lock the program in, but it sort of becomes a home base, and there's there's a sort of understanding. So when we get Mummy on the Orient Express, for instance, people, you know, immediately say it's classic Doctor Who, and I think that's largely because right. of Pyramids of Mars, and it's largely because of the Gothic horror that we see in the Hitchcliffe and Holmes years. So I think it almost has become a default setting for Doctor Who, um, and Baker's sort of larger than life persona as the Doctor. Maybe that is now a prerequisite or a requirement for what the Doctor is seen or, the, you know, the casting of a Doctor should be uh, should be um, aligned with. So I think there is mm-hmm. a degree of that. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And with New to Who, like, I believe a third of your New to Who <laughs> uh, episodes cover uh, Tom Baker. And I, your, your your inaugural episode was on Terror of the Zygons. Which it's true. was an interesting choice for introducing uh, new Who fans to classic Doctor Who. Yeah, I'm. I'm tr- want to do the maths on that, but it's it's very possible that a third is. But then you know Tom Baker almost takes up a third of the run yeah. of the classic series himself. So I mean mm-hmm. he's he's an absolute giant. But um, in, in terms of Terror of the Zygons, we really did think long and hard about what would be the best Doctor Who story to introduce some 
someone to. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean the best Doctor Who story. It means what would be a good starting right. point. So for, for Zygons, it just ticked all the boxes. And I remember uh, your episode quite recently on, on that episode um, of Terror of the Zygons. <laughs> um, everything that you spoke about there really sort of rings true and, and holds. I think it's a perfect jumping on point because it sort of sells what maybe in not an average because it's not average in terms of quality, but in terms of the hallmarks of of a Hinchcliffe and Holmes st- uh, story is, as you say, you know, alien invasions, body doubles, Loch Ness mm-hmm. monster, the sort of imminent threat, the London location in part four, etc. And and Tom and Liz and and uh, and Ian Marder, who are you know perhaps one of the the greatest, um, or not perhaps, but certainly one one of the greatest TARDIS teams of all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a time team that we'll never get back again due to the early oh. passing of Ian Martyr and uh, the almost, I guess it's not too recent anymore, but with the 10 years ago, Liz so, passing yeah. away in uh, right. 10 years ago. Yeah. Gosh, is it really so 10 it, years? It, it, it almost becomes sweeter in memory than maybe it perhaps actually was, if, <laughs> if that's I think possible. There was a, there was a, yeah, it's, it's certainly possible. There was a feature in Doctor Who magazine, like, maybe 10, 15 years ago, which talked about Terror of the Zygons as being like, you know, the one that you should... I think they showed it to some school kids. I think this was pre-2005, actually. It was pre-2005. They showed it to some school kids, like, I don't know, eight-year-olds or something. Right. And like, do you like this? And they all went, yes, we did. But they picked it. (laughs) Gary Gillett or whoever was the... I think it was Gary, who was the editor of DWM at that time, picked it because like, okay, this is... As you've just described it, this is the archetypal story. It's got Tom Baker in it. It's got, like, Mm. the Brigadier in it. It's, like, you know, there's a monster. There's a castle. There's a villain. The villains are scary. Um, The the aliens are scary. The villain is also (laughs) scary. Um, People swap their bodies. Um, You know, it's, yeah, it's it's, it's a good one. It ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I'm angry that they brought the Saigons back not looking quite right. In my opinion. Not rubbery enough. In my humble opinion, the Saigons were too, 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 yeah, they were too new looking. Oh, well. Muscular. Muscular. They were kind of buff. They were like ripped Saigons. They'd spent that. That's true, four, actually. That, that 4,000 years that they'd been traveling across space. In the gym. Steroids. Just pumping iron in their little Saigon gyms. Just the image of it alone. <laughs> bulking up, bulking up on on whey powder. I, I'm, I don't protein know. I don't and creatine do. anyway. and uh, and milk. <laughs> Ripped zygons. Ripped zygons. Yeah, yeah, zygons. So, do you have a personal favorite from the era? Do you? I, I noticed that you had a ranking for your master spreadsheet on there. Ah, yes. was a sample screenshot, and it looked like season thirteen and fourteen were your highest overall of the classic run. They are for me, yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing about getting older as a Doctor Who fan for me is that I learned to appreciate more and more of the other parts of Doctor Who that maybe I wasn't either familiar with or even didn't like. A classic example seems to be the Colin Baker era over the last couple of years. I'm, I'm, I'm more understanding of it. Even if I won't ever actually be a great fan of that era, um, mm-hmm. the more that I sort of delve into it and, and, and learn and discover about it, about that era. Um, with with Tom, I think the ones that I go back to are the ones that were on you know the ABC repeats as a kid, and it's those mem- memories of Genesis of the Daleks, which I think um, you know to try and sort of apply uh, a set of criteria to a Doctor Who story. I'm not I'm not sure there's a better better Doctor Who story than the Genesis of the Daleks. Um, that's an entirely mm. personal opinion. Um, but you're right; that overall quality of 13 and 14 is 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 really strong. But also, I don't 
I don't um, downplay this, I guess, but there is so much of that sort of cosy childhood sort of uh, feeling that's attached to stories like even the Android invasion that they are like, I, 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 <laughs> I'm a fan of the Android invasion because it sort of speaks to me of mm-hmm. that period of time mm. uh, and, the, and those sets of stories. Whereas perhaps, you know, other similar stories in terms of quality from other eras, maybe I don't rate as highly. So yeah, I think, I think 13 and 14 are my favorite series. 12 is, is incredible. And I think what you said, David, uh, on the Terror of the Zygons episode of yours ranks true as well, which is if that had been the last story of season twelve, that mm. could well be yeah. the you know the the greatest season of of classic Doctor Who for me. Um, but it's kind of spread across that twelve, thirteen, fourteen, with maybe thirteen being the peak for me. Um, having said that, I adore much of the Williams era and the bit me sort of conception of the dying Doctor after seven long mm-hmm. years. I think is entirely opposite and. That sort of last image of Tom broken underneath the uh, the Pharos Project Tower is something that um, you know haunts me. I guess as a Doctor Who fan, so there's a that entire arc through the seven years is I, I love all of it. Even the Armageddon factor, I you know Mary Tam in that dress. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so, with well, just kind of touch on the stories that you mentioned, like with Genesis, why what makes it perfect for you? What are the bits? Clams. That, it's always uh, the clams. It, it's the giant clams, right? That's I, of course, the part that I love. <laughs> yeah, cutting that out is a massive mistake of any version of that story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, well, gosh, where to start with that? You can start with the particulars. Um, you know, there's so much about its basic constituent elements that make it beautiful and perfect. I think at the heart of it is that that scene between Davros and the Doctor. Davros is the embodiment of evil. The Doctor is the the incarnation of the hero and the dialogue and discourse almost Socratic in nature between, you know, entirely opposing viewpoints around uh, life, meaning and, right. and uh, you know, how to live one's life and, and the ethics around that. I think that's kind of, mm-hmm. uh, for children, the sort of questions of philosophy and ethics that, uh, you know, wonderfully represented in, in really sort of iconic <laughs> uh, characters. Yeah. But, but also, I think Doctor Who is also a fundamentally post-war series, you know, the, the classic series 63 to 89. It sort of neatly sort of coincides, with, its end coincides with the end almost of the Cold War and sort of under that that sort of post-World War Two, post-Nazi kind of a shadow that, you know, the Daleks certainly have formed and that is a, is a huge aspect of it as well. And I think there's a great degree of fascination to me around Britain in that period, um, just as an outsider looking in. So there's there's that sort of personal uh, response to it as well. And, and Doctor Who and the Genesis of the Daleks, I think, as a result of all of those things, whether it's, you know, contextual, whether it's the, the sort of basic constituents, the giant clams, <laughs> the, <laughs> all of it together just sort of combines for me as uh, it has to be the, the quintessential Doctor Who story. And if you want to just tell someone what Doctor Who is, maybe just show them that 10-minute speech or dialogue between Davros and the Doctor. And it's just like, this is kind of it. This is what the show is about. Uh, a struggle between good and evil, effectively. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. For me, one of the great, apart from the clams, of course, which I think I said, I mean, in the 70s, when I was watching this as a kid, like giant clams were a real thing, you know, like this cliche that, you know, um, (laughs) quicksand was a thing. Um, Giant clams were a thing. We were really scared of giant clams, which I think is why they put them in, actually, to be honest. Is it a Jacques Cousteau thing? Um, Because it was the thing everyone was scared of at that particular time. They were like jaws, (laughs) only in clam form. Right, yeah. Um, Sure. The other thing, uh, what it gets me about Genesis is that oh, is that it yeah, is it is kind yeah. of very very morally grey, because <laughs> um, I came mm. through the Pertwee years and you know the Thals in 
planet of the Daleks were like these kind of blonde haired kind of good guys, kind of mm-hmm. freedom fighters. And I think, you know, uh, as again was fashionable in the 70s for drama, Terry Nation was kind of modeling them on, you know, the Israeli army. It, it was all, they've all got these kind of, you mm. know, Israeli sort of names and, and you know, they're kind of fighting fighting Nazis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in Genesis, what you realize, actually the Thals are just as bad as the Khaleds. Yeah. Um, and they're just as horrible. And there's actually, there's some Khaleds, you know, in the in the scientific elite who are actually trying to take down Davros. And this, and it, to me as a kid, and, you know, what was like, what was it, 1976 or so, you know, I was just 10 years old. And this felt like such a sophisticated piece of drama. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's not terrifically sophisticated, but... For a kid, it's like, wow, this is like I'm watching a grown-up uh, show that grown-ups don't know about. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't talk down to no, kids, it and it is a family audience, I agree, but it is pitched at the kids in the family, and as a result of that not wanting to talk down to kids, it, it, it really does, um, you know, maybe capture our adult imaginations as well, I guess. No, it, it's, I think it, so, it, yeah. I think it, so. It, it is, as you say, it is grey in the sense that it doesn't depict – um, you know, Thals and, and, and Carlos is very different, um, which is a fascinating idea. Um, yeah, I, I think that's one of its strengths, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. And by mistake, you create something that's worse than anybody. Um, you know, you're trying to do a good thing. You know, I mean, I guess like you know, like the Nazis, who obviously thought they were doing the right thing. Really? Um, <laughs> even though they weren't. Well, I think they. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, they're Nazis. I mean, they thought they were doing the right thing. It was obviously the wrong for thing, themselves. But, you know, yeah, um, sure. they weren't like ah, let's be evil, like you know, um, like Mitchell and Webb sketch or something. Um, <laughs> the skull, and yeah. the skulls. Are we the cats. baddies? <laughs> Are we the baddies? <laughs> Are we the baddies? <laughs> I often look at those trucks that drive around. All right, Seattle with the skulls on the back. Going like, hang on, do you know what you've got on the back of your truck? Anyway, um, yeah. but yeah, so it's it's yeah. It's, sorry, I'm getting off topic as usual, but um, it's it's uh, it's and when I'm when I think when you read interviews with Tom, and, and you know even when he's talking about the seventies and how much he felt a responsibility to kids to mm. you know get it right and be good and be a hero and when he met kids to be the doctor, not to be, you know, drunken old Tom Baker. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it, the show meant a huge amount to him. And I think the care that he lavished on, I was going to say the earlier seasons, but actually all of the seasons um, and the stories where he apparently doesn't care that much is because he didn't feel that they were scripts that were treating his character right. Absolutely. He cared so deeply about the show. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, I mean, he's he's probably um, during his time attuned to how much of an, a cultural legacy he's leaving behind. Whether it's just to kids at that time, but like just in terms of the impact that he has on kids is so evident in his uh, performance, but also just in the way that he talks about the program, even to this day. And I, I love the fact that you know you have you know Bohemian Tom at the Colony Club, but you know. When he sees a kid, he's in character, and you know he's careful mm-hmm. not to be seen, uh, you know, in public smoking and 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 drinking. I think that's I think that's wonderful. Yeah. So one of the other shows you mentioned was the Android Invasion, and Ben remembers <laughs> playing that as kids, or the doing the androids and the finger guns and finger stuff. Finger guns. What, what was, yes. <laughs> what, was it uh, similar to you playing with? Uh, 
playing androids or what what kind of resonated with the android invasion another oh, look, terry nation story i guess yeah it is isn't it and and i'm not the hugest fan of terry nation but um maybe it's it's just the production it's liz and tom you know frolicking in the sunlight in the english countryside there's some beautiful the part one is is magnificent i think terry nation knows how to write a part one <laughs> um so so that that's that's one of them as well the finger gun things I, we never really had um, Doctor Who in the playground, I guess. I, I mean, listening to uh, to Ben talk about that, um, and you know, uh, you know, in friends' yards and stuff like that, seems like an idyllic childhood. <laughs> I really only had the the target novelizations and a couple of friends who maybe watched it occasionally, um, but there was nothing, <laughs> nothing in the playground in terms of finger guns or whatever else. But um, I can totally see how that would be just conducive to just, you know, mimetic play and imitation in the playground the next day. It's just a wonderful visual. So absolutely, again, another, um, you know, sort of alchemic kind of thing that Doctor Who does, which is take everyday things that are just available to kids and just be able to to transform them into the stuff of play and imagination. Just in that regard, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So in the States in the 80s, it was definitely a nerd type thing to be into Doctor Who. Was it similar to okay, yeah. that in Australia then growing up or was it more cool? <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't think so. Um, I, I, was, I was quite young. I was in primary school. I'm not sure if there was like a nerd and cool kind of division at, or, uh, mm-hmm. at that stage, but it was certainly seen as sort of like, uh, put it, I would say that I was regarded oddly, you know, in moments of quiet or repose amongst my friends. So there was definitely this kind of like, really, you're into that? That's kind of like 15 years old or whatever it is, or how, or however right, old it right. was at the time. Right, right, right. Um, so, <laughs> so I was definitely the odd man out there. Um, not much has changed in that regard. But it, because it was target novelization, it was never really visually based. It was always story based. And even to this day, I approach Doctor Who in terms of narrative. And, uh, you know, I've since, as a result of Terran Sticks' influence, right gone on to do postgrad, you know, literary studies and whatever else. So I'm very attuned to to the mechanics of of um, of of plot um, and character, etc., and also like the, the issues of representation around television as well. Um, so to me, that's the lasting legacy of of Doctor Who to me as a kid, uh, more so than. Um, you know, maybe those sort of wonderful memories that Ben paints of of being able to play with friends in the in the cl- uh, in the classroom <laughs> playground, um, because it just wasn't a thing back then. It wasn't current. It wasn't like it wasn't new. It was already very old. Yeah. Is there some story of the Baker era that you think is more literary, since that kind of inspired you for? To, to to go on and study more of a literary literature Gosh. type aspect is is there a literary Doctor Who of the seventies or the Baker era? I think the androids of Tara certainly leaps out um, as a literary sort of. Obviously, it's the Prisoner of Zender, mm-hmm. isn't it? And and the rip off of that of the sort of um, fairy tale genre. I think Williams does a lot more in terms of literature and cribbing from that mythology as well, where Hinchcliffe and Holmes very much crib from from cinema. But I think you know what when when, when you talk about the influence of of Doctor Who on in terms of my you know literary aspirations and, and interests, it's more so. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be you know nineteenth century you know folk tales or whatever the case is. I think I think when you start to you know grow up and and be more conscious of hammer horror films and sci fi and all the mm-hmm. rest of it, you know everything is text and everything is sort of uh, intriguing to you. So these stories are sort of you know this is the great thing about Doctor Who. It can be 
one genre one week and something else entirely the next week and you're able to sort of hop between types of stories and that was that was definitely something that was appealing to me as well that it wasn't just the same old show and even now I sort of you know I sort of shrug my head and think you know how does a show like uh, a show like Suits last for however many years it's the same it's the same characters in the same location doing the same thing over and over again Mm -hmm. doesn't really make sense to me (laughs) It's well, the same thing over and over again. It has a fandom. <laughs> it does, yeah. Fair play. It, it, <laughs> just, it, I just it, don't it, get it. It appears to the kind of people who like the same things happening over and over again. Hmm. So hamsters on a wheel. I think. I think that's. Yeah, I think. It's yeah. True. You know. <laughs> yeah. And that's the one thing that Doctor Who doesn't do, right? Like we have our golden and favorite eras of the show, and. I think we sort of gravitate towards that for a number of reasons. A lot of it could be childhood sort of memories. Mm-hmm. But Doctor Who can't afford to be the same thing for much more than two or three years before mm. it needs a total reinvention. And, and that's something that massively appeals to me. And that, I think, helped with Tom having three different producers in his turn that uh, we have more or less three different distinct eras with uh, Tom's time yeah. as the Doctor. Yeah. And yeah. and in, in many ways, the, the Hinchcliffe home era is more samey it's more like we're doing the same thing every every show in just a different setting and the williams era perhaps has a little more creativity and a little more variety in the type of stories that they're having but with less uh more vision but less uh, budget to make those stories become uh, realized uh, television productions is there any from from i'm i'm just going from from the new to who aspect there's only a couple from new to who you have the pillar which has been i've read as the only classic doctor who worth watching for a new who uh fan that's city of death and then also (laughs) horror of fang rock which is one of my favorites where uh just this once Mm. rose nobody lives (laughs) (laughs) and there's almost a transition point isn't it like you can you can you can't say this is distinctively williams because it's not what the the williams era turns out to be but equally um there's a sort of shadow of Holmes and, and Hinchcliffe that sort of hangs over it as well so it's it's a beautiful sort of mm-hmm. crossing over point between those two eras um yeah look i think i think you're right in the sense that the, the productions in the first 3 years are so high and obviously budget has a lot to do with it you know we're not yet into the three-day week and the sort of opec oil yeah. crisis that affects britain so horribly in those you know 76 77 78 years um although we've certainly had troubles prior to that but i also feel that with the hinchcliffe and holmes era it's it's that perfect run if they had another season of it it would have been too much and i feel as though they they got the best of you know the hammer horror um sort of hollywood uh, you know, trope of, of of films. Doctor Who fired it for a, a kid audience, if you like, or a family audience, and mm-hmm. then and then it was mm-hmm. done, and then we were able to move on to the next thing, which is probably the best way of doing it and, and not outstaying its welcome. There's just that so much of that, I guess, that's so well done. And in the in in the Williams years, it's not to say that it's not well done. It's just that there isn't the same number of heights and hits, perhaps, as there are in the Hinchcliffe homes. I'm not sure what you you chaps think and um, whether that's true or not. I have a soft spot for the Key to Time series, mm-hmm. uh, particularly a um, little less so on season 17, but season 15 is an odd odd duck. Like you said, it's a transition year, hmm. but also I think 
it's uh, in the early phases. It's, it's Bob Holmes without the handbrake or the guiding force <laughs> of uh, Hinchcliffe on there saying, no, Bob, you can't do this. So that's <laughs> where some of the horror or some of the excesses of who, even though they were trying to uh, counter like the deadly assassin, the type of uh, horror and death and violence that was seen previously in season 14. Mm. And really, in some ways, there isn't that parental supervision. I think Williams is <laughs> struggling to keep his <laughs> uh, uh, show on getting something produced due to exploding budgets. And yeah. Bob Holmes is handing off the script editing responsibilities. And it doesn't really seem like anyone's really paying that close of attention because Image of the Fentel is pretty horrific. The doctor hands over a handgun to, I think it was it Styles, Styles, yeah, yeah. For, to to commit suicide. That's not something I think Philip Hinchcliffe would have allowed under his term. But uh, I agree. it 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 goes ahead in season fifteen, and it, it it's kind of a no holds barred type season where. It's a race on the hourglass of the sands running out of the hourglass where that's your pounds for your budget. And you're trying to get that last invasion of time episode done before <laughs> that last uh, pence filters down into the, the, nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Look, I'm a big fan of Image of the Ferndale. I think it's, it's a beautiful sort of mood piece. Again, some beautiful uh, location shooting and, and the night shooting in particular. It is probably as dark as Doctor Who in the classic series ever gets, and that is a, a question, if not an issue, to be asked of it. Um, I also don't think it sort of lands properly in, in part four. I think it's, it's a bit of a mess in, in, in that it doesn't quite pay off. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I'll say about season 15 is I don't think it's that they're not manning all stations, if you like. I think it suffers from the same thing that maybe season 24 does, which is a new production team, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing in the cupboard. Uh, having to turn this ship around very, very quickly, pressure from the BBC upstairs, and just trying to to sprint, um, perhaps before they can even walk. <laughs> and um, Williams does well, I think. I mean, th there's some wonderful stuff in there. Sunmakers is quite quite decent, um, but there's some terrible stuff as well. And I think think that sort of unevenness of, of tonality really reflects again just that that historical sort of point where we're at, which is. You know, Hinchcliffe has just basically been fired. He's been taken mm -hmm. off into um, a Target or at a moment's notice, and, and Williams has come in without much planning and, and a chance to really stamp his his mark on the show, which I think he does in, in season sixteen beautifully. Um, and so, as a result, it looks tatty and and uneven, and I think that's reflective of of the fact that it probably was in terms of vision, but also, mm -hmm. as you say. One pound at the beginning of that year is not worth one pound at the end of that year because of inflation, and it really suffers as a result, and they run out of money. Um, I think that's just the nature of, of, of life in 1977, I think, or whatever it was in, in the yeah. UK. Yep. Yeah. Do you think Tom overstayed his welcome, from not, not necessarily from fandom, but just as for the show itself? Do you think there was good off-ramps? for him, say, at the end of Invasion of Time or when maybe after Towns of Wang Chiang or something like that? Did, it's a good question. Did he leave at the right time or did he overstay his time? Oh, look, I'm again, I'm just going to go back to that last moment of Lycopolis and I wouldn't trade that in for anything. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's, it's beautiful in that regard. Seven years is a long stretch. As you say, he could well have gone 
um, at the end of Talons or, or even, um, you know, Armageddon, in fact, certainly Invasion of Time sort of allows for a moment of regeneration if you wanted to. But, you know, Williams at this point is is not even ready to to give um, Mary Tam a contract for the next year. You know, he's, he's having to scramble around and cast a, a lala water at the, at the 11th hour. I don't think that kind of thinking was uh, – was uh, that kind of planning was, was in place to sort of allow Tom to, to do that in a, in a non-sort of Colin Baker slash Sylvester McCoy regeneration kind of way. Um, but also in staying for seven years, there's something about – Tom's legacy that's cemented. Um, as you say, there's three acts to it, right? There's three parts to Tom, three very different mm-hmm. eras, and each of them have uh, great joy attached to each of them for me. Um, so I, I don't know if he stayed too long. I mean, if you were doing television now, you would certainly have written him out sooner, and I think you would have, uh, just for the sake of change, got someone else in. I don't know who that could have mm-hmm. been at the time. Um, other than your sort of usual suspects around Paul Darrow or whoever is off doing Blake Seven anyway. <laughs> Paul Darrow, um, yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but but other than that, like I, hmm, I don't know if he stayed too long, but I do understand that there is um, a longevity about him where you sort of halfway through season fifteen, perhaps, and you sort of think, oh gosh, how many more seasons is there of this? It's just that mm-hmm. there is. You know, it changes. It doesn't stay like that. There isn't. There isn't. Again, it, it's not suits. It's something that will always reinvent itself. And and Tom, Tom has, as I say, three distinct eras. And I wouldn't trade any of them in, to be honest. Um, I think the mm-hmm. the progression of that, um, those three eras as well. Not just the fact that there's three very distinct eras. The progression of those from from that kind of um, uh, serious and moody to fun and silly space disco opera kind of stuff, and then into mm-hmm. you know that funereal complexities of the Bidmead era, uh, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's a perfect arc for the, probably the largest Doctor in terms of uh, persona out of the, the, the classic seven or eight, if you include McGann. So no, I don't think he stayed too long personally, but I can understand why people would, would think that, definitely. So let's talk about that funeral season, that last mm. season. I was caught by surprise when Tom fell from the radio telescope i really i did not know you were like oh my god he's fallen off the radio telescope (laughs) well i I, know what's gonna happen i had no idea about regeneration even though i had seen the pertwee to tom regeneration it didn't sink in and i had seen it several at least once before i saw legopolis so for me it was a surprise how about for you steven um, it wasn't a surprise in the sense that um, what had happened in the meantime was I had become a Doctor Who fan, read many Target novelizations, but also uh, the Doctor Who quiz book, which kind of spoiled <laughs> 20 years worth of stories for me, which was yeah. good in some ways because yeah. at that stage when you're, you know, what, an 11-year-old kid uh, and you're just sort of absorbing information as much as you can, um, I kind of enjoyed that. I kind of knew the, the shape of Doctor Who over those first 20 years or so and I and appreciated that quite a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wasn't sp- I wasn't, it's not that I was spoiled, but I was certainly aware that this was the shape of the show. So in Legopolis, when it was airing, uh, I think it would have been 1991, late 1991 on the ABC, um, I knew that this was coming. And so, um, you know, watching Keeper of Traken, which in hindsight is, um, you know, a Shakespearean tragedy with the infinite chain yeah. of being being disrupted yeah, and the awesome. death of the king – I just sort of yep. think, oh, something, something is coming. Like there's, in the same way that um, you know, in in the modern series, there's a big bad to which we always look forward to, and that sort of uh, is presaged and uh, signposted mm-hmm. throughout, whether it's Bad Wolf or, or whatever the case is. 
uh, Torchwood, um, there was a similar sort of feeling that things are winding down here. Tom looks older, you know, there's that sort of gaunt aspect to his face and his hair is starting to go grey. That monochromatic Mm -hmm. maroon outfit that he's got is is really quite sombre and I I love it. Um, But so (laughs) so starkly at odds with the colourful sort of larger-than-life persona that we saw even one year ago in in, in season 17, Mm -hmm. you just know something's up. The other thing um, that my nerd brain connected was that we had – a change in title sequence for series 11, which was um, Pertwee's final year. And we have a change in title sequence in Tom Baker's final mm. year as well. <laughs> so point, almost yeah. like presaging the, the new Doctor's arrival. Um, mm-hmm. So so there was there was certainly textual, but also metatextual sort of indicators around the coming of this, uh, not even regeneration, because it, it kind of felt like something was ending the show was ending in many regards like i was so unfamiliar with with davison and his doctor I never saw him there weren't any of the target books in the library they kind of went up to 1979 or whatever the case is huh. so to me that was a new horizon that was uh, i was entirely unfamiliar with so it did feel uh, extra resonant i guess that yeah this doctor and maybe my doctor was was coming to an end um, and I looked. F- oh, that sounds ghoulish. I looked forward to it, but like I anticipated that. So, so when that final moment where he sort of falls atop the radio from atop the radio tower with the uh, the master sort of uh, you know uh, cackling <laughs> away there, I kind of thought, wow, <laughs> that's epic. This is this is this is almost like a perfect end to this this wonderful Doctor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, fond memories. So uh, had you been aware of? Peter Davison at all did they show like because he was in like any number of sitcoms throughout the 80s um even when he was doing Doctor Who in the UK and then of course we all knew him as Tristan Farnan Quite from right. All Creatures Great and Small so it was like oh yeah it's Tristan Farnan now he's <laughs> apparently he's the Doctor um and so yeah was I mean knowing that you know a lot of British TV ends not ends up you know he's also shown in Australia. Have mm. you seen Davison at all in other things? Or? C- certainly in All Creatures. Um, and I only really right, sort of okay. paid attention to All Creatures because of the Doctor Who quiz book where Davison's name was revealed as the fifth Doctor to me. Um, <laughs> so I don't think I saw him elsewhere. I don't think there was any sort of like, um, you know, there was no one around me to tell me that, oh, Davison was the next Doctor and they'd seen episodes or yeah. whatever. I was sort of going into it blind. Because again, I mean, I think the kind of fascinating difference is because Doctor Who being a weekly thing in the UK mm-hmm. and kind of happening in real time rather than on a kind of repeat cycle like in Australia and, and the United States is that, you know, we all knew what was going to happen because it was in the newspapers and it was on the news and your parents were kind of talking about it. I guess for you two, like, well, this is a kid's show and no one's talking <laughs> about it apart from nobody. Right. Um, so <laughs> we don't really know. But also it was current for you, right, Ben? So you... You were living through a time when you know the radio times were announcing these things, where each and yeah. each each episode was brand new and, and never to be seen again. You know, probably at the time, never again. Whereas yep. for us, it was like, well, certainly for me, I think Davison by the time I saw him was sort of like ten years after the point where he left the show. You know, that was my yeah. my my brand my brand new doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's actually ten right. years old. Um, right. So it's 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 a matter of geography and and certainly the different ways in which the show was was stripped for us, but also time. I mean, it was a lot later than um, everyone else, I guess, in the UK would have been familiar with Davison as the Doctor because, you know, what was it, 10 years, 10 odd years late after that diet that I got to see him. Yeah, Hmm. yeah, makes sense. So with season 18 then, with uh, you knowing something's up, I guess, like things like with the older Doctor in Leisure Hive when he's in the old age Mm. makeup and stuff, it's just... Yes, 
I guess that in retrospect, that's kind of foreshadowing of this is if if Tom didn't already look old, he really looked old with the old man beard <laughs> and gray hair. That was good makeup as well for yeah, like nineteen eighty or whatever it was. That's that's pretty awesome old person. Makeup. I agree. I agree. They didn't just spray his hair silver and like okay, he looks older. Cool. Yeah, that that that's another one of those sort of visual sort of signs that we're winding down um this doctor's era, isn't it? Um yeah, definitely. The whole thing just sort of has this what's that line from Yates, the Senate cannot hold. There's something about, you know, things just starting to fall apart. And entropy, of course, is a sort of recurring yeah. theme throughout. Right, 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 right. There's that wonderful a moment. Bit of yeah, yep. exactly. There's that sort of wonderful bit uh, actually in part one of Legopolis where the doctor actually picks apart some of the stonework, the masonry in, in the TARDIS <laughs> and, and the the TARDIS itself mm-hmm. is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, thematically and just these beautiful little touches that all indicate that yeah things are coming to an end yeah. really well done I think yeah no, he's an old person and he's a cactus <laughs> yes and you know, it's like wow they're, they're really kind of screwing around with Tom Baker at this point <laughs> almost kind of like you know like, <laughs> expect him to leave because like I don't want to be another thing that I'm not. I'm going now. <laughs> he did have a lot of that throughout his time, didn't he? Like the um, the bit in Stones of Blood uh, at the end of part one, where um, Roman is sort of like back to backing off a cliff. That's meant to be Tom, but he's by that point he's he's thought I've done this too many times. I don't want to be the evil doppelganger right. again. So he, he refused <laughs> to do it, and that's why when I looked when I was watching part one as a kid, it was just like, what is going on here? And it's not till I think part right, right, three right. that it's explained. But right. you know, oh, you were the. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, Mary Tam does her best to sell it, but it, a visual of uh, a doppelganger Tom would have been would have done a lot better. Would have been good. Yeah, rather than her just mm-hmm. like, ah, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's enough of a star yeah. at that point to sort of say, no, I'm not going to do that. But I, what I do like about Megloss is the fact that it gives Tom Baker the honor of being the only person to have two waxworks in Madame yeah. Tussauds <laughs> <laughs> because of the, uh, the green cactus yeah. version of him as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a damn good they made that wax work. Otherwise, the five doctors would have been even less <laughs> useful than it ended up being. Yeah, three doctors, one imposter, and the wax work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that photograph. I remember seeing that photograph. And I, yeah, what, what was I, like 14, 15 at that point? Right. It's like, hang on. <laughs> that's not really Tom Baker. That's a wax work. <laughs> I can imagine the disappointment. <laughs> yeah, Tom, after the series, I understand why he didn't want to come back for the Five Doctors, but as a young teenage fan, I really would have liked him to come back, and I've always always, <laughs> always wanted early on with the Big Finish. It wasn't Big Finish until Tom Baker came back to do uh, oh, yeah. Doctor Who, and one of my disappointments, and I, I'm sure it is for Tom, too, in retrospect, is that he wasn't able to record with Liz. Mm. Liz, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But it is interesting how the kind of, you know, history pr- repeats itself. You know, Tom doesn't come back for the five doctors mm-hmm. and Chris doesn't come back for um oh, yeah. the 50th anniversary. There's like, oh, wow, <laughs> yes. There's a there's circles within circles. <laughs> so that's true. Uh, so was uh, Tom coming back during the Day of the Doctor a punch the air moment for you, Stephen? Or was it... Uh... How was it for you? It really was. Nice, I, nice I, segue there, David. It, I like it. That's why I make the big bucks. Uh, <laughs> um, I was unspoiled. So I it, I went into a total media black, uh, you know, sort of lockdown months ahead of the 50th. 
uh, probably from around about the time of the name of the Doctor, in fact. Just didn't want to be spoiled in any way. And it was easy for me to do that because, um, you know, I wasn't really sort of active in fandom or mm-hmm. anything like that. Right. Probably until 20. 20- 16 anyway so yeah. so I was just happy to sort of switch off Twitter and, and not read any of the uh, the news sites so when that voice rung out in the cinema there was a, a moment where I just was transported back to being you know eight years old and <laughs> watching Tom Baker for the first time and sort of uh, I, I, don't, I don't know it's I, in many ways I look on the 50th special as one of, you know, perhaps even the best New Who story. Um, but the way in which it coheses Doctor Who, not just as a post-2005 event, but as 50 years of a, of a mythology, not even mm-hmm. a television show, but in fact a, a mythology born out of television. And for Tom Baker to be the Doctor just seemed entirely fitting and uh, momentous and grand and... Um, yeah, bridge bridge the past and the present and the future, and I, it's just one of those moments where I will never ever ever forget that feeling and being in that cinema when that voice rang out in the darkness. Just incredible. He's always very magical when he's really playing or playing playing himself, but playing the Doctor. And that was one of those moments <laughs> of magic where you where you go, is this Tom? Is this the Doctor, or is it both? And yes. I always feel like it's both. And he's really. Uh, the example of just play yourself or become the doctor or the doctor becomes the actor portraying mm. him. And for me, Doctor Who and Tom Baker are inseparable. And mm. it's it's the uh, yardstick for how all other shows, do- all other doctors, all other uh, episodes of Doctor Who are kind of measured by. And in some ways, and in many ways, I think that's really unfair to New Who and all all his successors. But I, I am very partial to Tom Baker, and like I said, I really imprinted on him. Yeah, absolutely. I've I, I suddenly thought, David. I mean, if we're, we're going to keep on doing our Tom Baker retrospective series, mm-hmm. um, we're going to have to do the 50th anniversary special um, because that's got Tom Baker in it. Yeah. Um so yeah. But I mean the what what was I mean I I I was also I think I was had also I think you know I think I'd been spoiled. I knew that um <laughs> that um that Paul McGann was oh. going to because there was some internet things like it's going to be Paul McGann. Oh. Um so then I then okay, I don't want to find out any more about this and it was a surprise to me when Tom Baker turned up and I wasn't expecting to be quite so affected by it i was mm. um, well i wasn't expecting him to turn up for a start and then when he did turn up it's like oh hang on this is actually really sad and also good and everything that you sort of want drama to be at the same time um and also the other thing i think is that is that it's it's it also kind of justified in the tv sense the fact that the doctors are old and that, um, you know, I think we had that with Time Crash and when David Tennant met met, mm. uh, met Peter Davison, you know, the, the, the doctors are old and we see them regenerate when they're young, but actually they're also old. And that also feeds into my own head canon about Doctor Who is that there isn't really any kind of linear time in, in Doctor Who. It's all just a big pile of everything happening all at once mm-hmm. everywhere. And that the doctors are simultaneously old and young, um, and they can be a, a kind of the older. They can be people in their seventies and eighties as they are now, 
But at the same time, they're people in their 30s and their 40s as well, which mm. I think is actually makes the show even more beautiful mm. to me. Because mm. obviously I'm a fan and I think it's a beautiful show. Mm-hmm. I do like that idea. I certainly always conceived of, uh, you know, the, the universe in which Doctor Who sort of uh, sits being a commingling of all of the incarnations and plenty others that we haven't seen all operating at once, just in different pockets and occasionally they'll meet up. But I love that idea. Uh, ben, that they age, that they sort of, that there is an 80 year old version of the fourth doctor and we see it, you know, in the yeah. form of the curator or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Uh, reminds me of that novelization of the massacre where there's a section where it's the first doctor, um, or is it the five doctors novelization? And he's like preparing for his, you know, up, you know, uh, impending regeneration. And there's sort of this, this, this sort of idea that these doctors exist past their point of regeneration, that they sort of, you know, mm. whether, whether it's the first doctor sort of tends roses in the garden like he does in, in Paul Cornell's Revelation or whatever, that there is a, uh, a life beyond the, uh, the series that we saw on television. I, lo- I love that idea. I think that's beautiful. Life beyond regeneration. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, and I, I mean, I've criticized. I mean, I've criticized. It makes you sound like I'm, you know, like Andrew Neal or someone. Um, I mean, I've, I've opined on a rarely or on a small audience podcast um, before um, that I don't like the kind of whole drawn out regeneration thing that kind of started with Tom, where you know the regeneration happens for an entire story before it happens, and then also for an entire story afterwards. And I've said that I did, I, I don't like that mm-hmm. because I kind of don't. But actually, the regeneration of Tom into Peter with the Watcher, and mm-hmm. you know, just as again as you've put it, Stephen, the kind of funereal dying fall of that episode of Logopolis is 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 again. I mean, you know, I I didn't like it at the time. But what's great about the show is that things you didn't like at the time, you find yourself wanting to know more about or growing mm-hmm. into or becoming more interested in at other stages of life. And the 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 whole kind of watcher aspect does, in a weird way, and again, in my own head canon, also fit in with the curator and this idea of doctors being old and young <laughs> and... As I said, it's such a rich, it's such a rich show. Um, you know, there's so much in it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, we I've done done a podcast on it for years, so yeah, obviously, I like it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, any yeah. any questions that you would like to ask us, or any anything that uh, you would like to put us on the spot for? Us since I've been, I feel like I've been doing twenty questions an hour. For <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a good interviewer. Yeah. Well. I mean, I'd love to know what you make of the shape of the, those seven years in particular. So, um, you know, we've, we've talked about the Hinchcliffe and Holmes, the Williams era, and then lastly, the sort of Bidmead coda, if you like, um, that ends with Legopolis. It's interesting to hear Ben's comment that um, he wasn't a fan of it at the time. And I can totally understand that. I guess he would have been at that age where you would have wanted the Doctor to go out with a bang. And I've heard... You know, many fans sort of say it would have been wonderful if you know the great vampire was sort of like the cause for the for the fourth Doctor's regeneration. It seems more heroic, um, though I, I tend to like the sort of more funereal aspect of Legopolis itself. But I guess my question is, as you sort of look back on those seven years, how do you trace it in terms of the big picture, highs and lows, the dips and valleys, the, the you know the high the the the, the moments where Doctor Who is uh, under Tom Baker, you know Doctor Who as you as you most uh, readily conceive of it, as opposed to, you know, perhaps the low lights where, you know, um, we're not really sure why, why we're making the show anymore. How do you feel about those seven years in, in totality? Mm-hmm. 
you want to go Ben or you want me to oh well I mean I think I think we've just covered I mean uh, the podcast that we've just recorded which covered the the, the season that we that, that certainly I find to be the most unformed which is season 17 ah. um yes ironically of course it includes the kind of lambent highlight that everyone points yeah. to which is city of death and also for me you know another incredible highlight which is horns of Nymon, which again i hated at the time i love um, it but um now i just find a really good i actually i i, I kind of rate it along with sorry, i don't rate it quite as high as the city of death but it seems to me one where the kind of the kind of dead hand of um of douglas adams actually <laughs> does does good rather than evil um, um to the show <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, that's such a weird kind of transitional, like we were just saying with season 15, it's such a weird kind of transitional season where, where you know, we, we talked about, you know, season 15 and Williams is trying to kind of you know, like stamp his mark as a producer on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then key to time season where, okay, I'm the producer and now here's my idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be one big story. Um, and then you move, uh, so season 16, and then move on to season 17. It's like, oh, my God, my star is actually getting away from me, and mm. I can't control the bastard anymore. And he's just, like, <laughs> doing exactly what he wants with his girlfriend, seems yeah. to be wife. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's where the kind of uh, the kind of highs and lows kind of appear for me. And then, I mean, the, the, the kind of Hinchcliffe home stuff is such a part of my childhood that I can't even think about it in terms of i can't i mean i can't really conceive of it in a kind of objective terms sure. hmm. it literally happened to me uh and those stories are so real that you know they may as well as i said they may as they may as well have actually happened as far as i'm concerned hmm. yeah so for me i had doctor who on the continuous loop at 5 30 on monday through friday mm-hmm. but it wasn't until season 16's pirate planet that i really started uh actively seeking out doctor who and so like from the pirate planet on it just kept building in my intensity and fervor for this show so mm-hmm. uh even 17 i I kept adding monsters from Doctor Who into Dungeons and Dragons. So there was just, mm-hmm. it was just keeps building and building. And at the end of Legopolis, I was shocked. Well, first off, with Warrior's Gate, I was surprised that there wasn't the Romana show. I thought there'd be a spinoff show that we'd follow Romana in Space. And I remember <laughs> calling up my local public broadcaster saying, when is the Romana show on? Bless. And trying to get details from them. So it kept growing and growing. And then it, Tom, Tom falls and regenerates into this young blonde person who looked like me back mm. when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old. And then we loop back into season 12 again, because mm. that's the way it worked. And I was so hooked after that. And I got another dose of Tom reinforced after that. So it just kept wow. kept mm. growing. And to be honest with you, for me, the low point is probably like invasion of time but even then i still like underworld like the quest is the quest and there's, <laughs> uh, even the even the low parts just hit me so hard that yes i can rank them as adult but if i go back to look at them and how i saw them as a child i'm just in love with this show this is doctor who for me this is mm. tom baker on this pass around i had a vhs recorder at that time so i was recording them all and then mm. mainlining them when they aren't on television so it's just <laughs> I, yep. doctor who and tom baker it's just coalesced and 
yeah, there's good and bad, but it's all Tom Baker, and I love mm. it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <Here, here. laughs> quite right. Yeah. So I can objectively say, yes, Underworld is not as great as uh, Genesis of the Daleks, but have you looked at Tom when he carries the young boy and just mm-hmm. the care that he took with that, or just how he delivers with a straight face what can suck can also blow, or what can <laughs> blow can also suck? And, and, you know, as a teenager, you get that when you're, you know, you're 17 or 18, but it washes over you when you're, you know, 12 yeah. years old. So yeah. it, there's levels of enjoyment. And like I say, I, I think it's unfair as a guide to judge Doctor Who against Tom Baker era since it, for me, since it imprinted so heavily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. Fair enough. All right. Any final thoughts, gentlemen? Gosh, I could talk all day about Tom Baker and Doctor Who in particular, but uh, this has been so much fun. I, I don't know how long we've been recording, but it seems like five minutes um, just <laughs> being able to chat about really seven and, seasons. Yeah. <laughs> and seventy seven seasons, as you say, of the show, it just feels like a, an absolute joy. And, and, and like yourself, um, even even the bad parts I enjoy. I, as I said, I love the Armageddon factor. <laughs> I mean, if that if that doesn't sort of yeah. speak volumes for for how I mm-hmm. see this era of the show, I don't know what does. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I mean I think it's what makes makes people fans really. You almost like the bad stuff more than you like the good stuff, really. Certainly more to talk about when it's really bad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's always something to enjoy. You know, there's it's 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 such an enjoyable show, and Tom is such a interesting person to watch pretend to be someone else, <laughs> even if he's. Actually, just <laughs> pretending to be him. Well, he, he's pretending to be himself. Um, it's you know, it's 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 true. Yeah, it's you get that impression. You know, you? it's there's, exactly. It's like I'll just pretend to be my. You know, it's the he's such an interesting person. He's such an interesting actor. He's such a charismatic individual, and um, he uh, yeah, there's 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 so much in that mm-hmm. show, and he and he brings all of it. And he brings all of it in a way. I'm now warming to my theme when we're just when we're supposed to be stopping. Um, you know, he brings all of it in a way that the more actorly doctors, so your Troutons and your Davisons, mm-hmm. don't bring all of it because they're you know they are acting a part and they they're, they're trying they're trying to find the truth in the in the you know in the in the script or whatever actors are supposed to do with their time. When Tom, you know, he doesn't. <laughs> You know, he's 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 just he's just being himself, you know, which is which is great. Yeah, he is the doctor. For him and for us. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So if if you don't know already, you can find Stephen on the internet at new com and on twitter at uh, styling underscore steed is that correct i uh, know be, i've been banished by the twitter lord so my new incarnation is at steed styling without the g on the end yes all one <laughs> word <laughs> and uh he's a good person to follow and a very interesting podcaster to listen to oh thank you and thank you, chaps, for uh, for having me on. It's been so much fun to talk one of my favorite eras of the show, after, especially after having you two on to talk the Hinchcliffe and Holmes in our <laughs> retrospective that um, was released with the Ark in Space. So uh, happy to, mm-hmm. to chat with you always, and um, thank you again. We sort of represented the old guard in that. We're the only ones, I think, <laughs> that didn't take, take Ark in Space down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to like about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, 
Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening to episode 171 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been traipsing across time and space with Stephen and Ben. I have been pretending to be myself, as usual, with Stephen and David. <laughs> and I've been charting the rise and fall of the great Tom Baker with Ben and David. Awesome. All right. Farewell. Good night. Be seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so much fun. Bye.